Welcome to the Plain Talking UK podcast. My name is Matt Smith. This is episode 304. And on today's show, three dead and 180 people hurt as a jet skids off the runway in Istanbul. Abu Dhabi's long-troubled carrier Etihad sells 38 jets for $1 billion. And a struggling Cathay Pacific takes shocking measures to protect its financial security. Captain John Hutchinson talks to us about the early days for BOC and Concorde. And we have a list, some listener feedback back from James Taylor and Alan Loveday. And finally, in the military, US operations plan to buy 75 light attack aircraft for armed Overwatch. And the RAF welcomes its first Poseidon to the Kinloss Blaze. So it's just me in the studio this week. Uh, but joining me uh, down the line uh, from what I could... Well, I, I think I think it's the eighth wonder of the world, if my memory serves. Uh, joining me down the line is the legend that is Micah. Hello, Micah. I was on mute, but I'm not now. It's so hard <laughs> to shut me up and finally... <laughs> oh, dearie me. Uh, hello, Micah. How are you? I'm doing great. It's so nice to be here with you, and uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Things are going really well, although we just had an ice storm. And when I went out this morning, I had to chip off about a quarter of an inch of ice. That's what, uh, a quarter, about a centimeter? Right? Yeah, about a centimeter, I suppose, of ice off my car before I could move it anywhere. Oh, gosh, blimey. It's, I, mean, I mean, it's winter here, actually, but... Uh... We're, we're, you know, we really are having quite a quite a mild winter here. So, I mean, I, th- I think I think the the temperature has dropped like below like zero a couple of times here. It's re- it's really not been a bad winter at all. I mean, what sort of temperatures have you got in in Maine? Well, it's been it's actually been beautiful and really really warm. Like not very much above zero regularly. And uh, and past several weeks, I haven't even really for me needed a jacket. But yesterday we had uh, six inches of snow. That's what about fourteen centimeters. And oh, then blimey. last night uh, we had uh, about all that ice. And we're going to get a little bit more snow tonight. And then it's supposed to get very very cold and drop down below zero to about twenty three degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And I'm sorry, I'm just not good at my conversions. But, uh, <laughs> That's all right. You're forgiven. Uh, I'm rubbish at them too. So uh, we'll, we'll uh, we can both say numbers, and neither of us will understand uh, what <laughs> what they are. Now, hopefully, uh, the weather is a little bit better where uh, my 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 actual co-host, the legend that is Armando, is on the show this week. Now he is in transit, so we're a little bit scared uh, because he is bombing up and down a motorway heading towards Washington, if my memory serves. That's correct, guys. Uh, reporting live from the Plain Talking US uh, mobile studio, since Matt, you are outnumbered by us Americans yes, today. Yes, yes, fair point, yes. <laughs> that... No, Micah, I know exactly what you were talking about. The last four days I've spent flying up in the Northeast, and uh, while I am incredibly impressed by my aircraft's capabilities and icing, it is not my favorite thing to do. And <laughs> you guys had some pretty uh, challenging weather up there this whole last uh, couple of days, and including yesterday here in North Carolina, we had tornado warnings. We had quite a, quite a big storm system that moved through. I think even one tornado touched down somewhere in the Charlotte area. So it was a complete madhouse trying to get back home after I was done with my shift. Uh, ended up going to Washington, D.C., which was also a madhouse, and then uh, ended up making it back to Charlotte somewhere around 9 p.m. or so. Um, but... Uh, Ben, my, my, my thoughts are with everybody that had to spend the night on an airport bench at oh. the Charlotte airport uh, last night. So can you tell us where you've been flying in the Northeast, Armando? 
Yeah, so most of my routes are uh, begin in Pittsburgh, I end in Baltimore, and then I sort of go everywhere in between uh, in the Northeast, between uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Maryland, Virginia, uh, Delaware, sort of that whole area. Now, thankfully, next week I only do that for two days, then I head down to sunny Phoenix to fly two days out of Phoenix and uh, two days out of Denver, Colorado. So a little bit all over the place next week uh, in the country. Sounds like fun. Southwest is a beautiful part of the country to see this time of year. Yeah, those guys don't know what to do with a cloud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I bet. I bet. Uh, so, uh, so that's obviously what's, uh, what you, you've, it sounds like you've had a busy week then, Armando. What about uh, you, Michael? What have you been up to this week? Well, uh, you know, recently I've, uh, as some of you know, I've been, I've been having some back problems, which is crazy, but that had me joining a gym and going to physical therapy. Oh, and blimey. Today, I can't believe I spent a half an hour on the bike at the gym before I came here. That's not like me at all. Something's <laughs> wrong. I must hey, be sick. <laughs> if, if it works, mate, if it works, that, that is all that matters. <laughs> But no, it's been uh, it's been really fun. Kind of slow uh, aviation wise, but I was uh, I did. Uh, this is a great week for me in terms of podcast squatting because I uh, I got to co-host uh, Airplane Geeks this week, and that was a lot of fun with just uh, David and Max. We had no guest, and now I get to hang out with you guys. And who could ask for more? Well, quite. That's lovely. Those are lovely words. Uh, and on that bombshell, what we're going to do then, if that's all right with everybody, and if everybody's ready, it's time to do some aviation news. So here we go. And story number one this week, we're going to throw that over to Armando. So good luck, everyone, as the mobile studio is now officially live. Yeah, guys, this one is from the BBC.com. This is an amazing story. While there were three individuals that lost their lives, a passenger plane landing at an airport in Istanbul has uh, skidded off the runway and broken into three parts, killing three people, injuring 180 others. The Pegasus Airlines jet was carrying 177 passengers, six crew members from uh, Izmir province in the west when it crashed at uh, the Sabiha Gokin airport. Uh, 737 was trying to land in heavy tailwinds and rain. Uh, the airport was closed and flights diverted after the accident. The majority of people aboard were Turkish, but local media quoted the airline's records as saying there were 22 foreign passengers from 12 other countries. A small number of children are also believed to have been on board. Uh, the Istanbul governor said, unfortunately, the Pegasus Air- Airlines plane couldn't hold on to the runway due to poor weather conditions and skidded for around 50 to 60 meters. He said the plane then fell between 30 and 40 meters off the end of the runway. The airport has since reopened while prosecutors have uh, opened an investigation into the crash. Uh, video, footage, uh, video footage showed the passengers climbing through one of the large cracks to escape via one of the wings. Dozens of rescuers working around the jet. Um, other Video footage showed uh, a blaze inside the aircraft, which was later uh, put out by firefighters. The transport minister said the authorities had not yet been able to speak to the pilots, uh, who are a Turkish and a South Korean national. Uh, They have also been injured in the accident. Uh, The article goes on to talk a little bit about uh, Pegasus' uh, fleet of 83 aircraft uh, mixed between Boeing and Airbus. But... uh, 
Yeah, so there was uh, amazing pictures coming out of this. Uh, the plane broke apart, uh, per, you know, pretty significant damage. And it's uh, just amazing that only three people have lost their lives in this uh, mishap. I mean, so, initially, um, the 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 early reports were saying that uh, nobody had uh, had been sort of killed uh, in the accident. Was that just misinformation, or was it that they they, they died from the injuries they sustained eventually? Um, I, I... Exactly, like any other you know significant crash or mishap like this, often the initial information is a little bit um, sketchy. Yeah, but uh, yeah, very very often it's those smoke inhalation. Uh, burns that you know they, somebody gets rescued from an aircraft, but then you know things kind of go sour at the at the hospital. Yeah, and we don't know that that's the case with these three individuals. No. Obviously, there was 180 others that were taken to hospital. Um, I mean, so, it's like you know, the Monty Python film. I'm not quite dead. Well, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I mean, I mean this. I mean, this is uh, really, as you say, when you, when you I mean, we've all seen the the videos and the, uh, and the footage and stuff, and you look at the damage to the actual aircraft. I mean, it's amazing, really, that anybody, um, you know, sort of survived. Really, I guess, isn't it? To, for it to break up yeah. like that. I mean, that's that's the thing that's so surprising, isn't it? The fact that it's, you know, the 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 bumping that it's sustained, if you like, was severe enough to damage the hull in, you know, and break it into three paces so it's easy to miss but if you look at the pictures the forward quarter of the fuselage is actually upside down so in the breakup uh, if you notice the letters on the side of the airplane towards the cockpit are upside down which means as the plane was breaking up oh yeah the the forward quarter of the airplane rolled over on its back and that is exactly where the passenger compartment is, the first-class passenger compartment, including the pilots. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a, it's amazing that more people weren't uh, killed in this mishap. You know, and I'm curious. I'm wondering if it was uh, runway conditions. I'm wondering if they were landing in a tailwind. And if it was runway conditions, why wasn't it reported before? If it was a tailwind, wouldn't they have known there was a tailwind? Or was it the tires that just couldn't get a grip because they were poor and old, which is very, very unusual. Yeah, like most of these other uh, mishaps that we talked about, we're just going to have to wait a couple weeks for it to come out. But, uh, yeah, it could be any any, any one of those things or a combination of all of those things, Micah. Yeah, could well be. Uh, it's, uh, as you say, we're, uh, we need to uh, wait for further details, really, before we can't really speculate any further, I guess. So, but... Uh, just relieved, I suppose, that the the amount of people involved uh, is is, or that you know the casualties, the the death toll certainly is, is very low. I mean, well done to everyone for that, really. Uh, Chris well, Gibbs in the chat room says that there are reports that there was a nineteen knot tailwind, which I believe is uh, one knot higher than uh, what they're supposed to be landing with. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, is it one of those where it, you know, was it still? Move? I guess it must have still been moving with um, some velocity, perhaps, uh, and caught by the wind uh, to to sort of put it to where it ended up. I guess uh, down the side of a, uh, essentially the side of a ravine, isn't it? It's uh, yeah, not good. Anyway, we're going to move on now to the next story, and story number two as always, obviously, is a Ryanair story. And uh, this is from uh, Bloomberg. Uh, and the headline is, Ryanair says uh, coronavirus should keep Europeans closer 
to home. This is uh, classic Ryanair trying to spin a bad situation uh, to their advantage, I guess. Ryanair Holdings PLC said demand for air travel within Europe could receive an unlikely boost if the Chinese coronavirus epidemic persists, prompting people to holiday closer to home. Trends uh, from 2003, when travellers shunned Asia after the SARS, that's the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome outbreak, suggest customers uh, may begin to alter their travel habits. Ryanair Chief Financial Officer Neil Soran uh, said in an interview for Ryanair, a surge in European travel would bolster its margins as it grapples with the grounding of the Boeing 737 MAX. Uh, we have uh, a small snippet from that interview. Let's see what Mr Soran had to say himself. Those are the numbers. We will, we will come straight back to the numbers in a moment, but we need to get your assessment. The world's grappling with the coronavirus. We're trying to understand if there's been any impact on businesses or how it might play out. You and I have lived through the SARS in business in different ways. Any change in the booking systems or numbers in the past 10 days in Europe? No, Manus. In fact, our bookings are 1% ahead of where they were at this time last year, uh, where we're flying at very high load factors of about 96%. Uh, as you said yourself, uh, both of us have been through the SARS virus in the past. Uh, the experience at that time was that people tended to uh, stay close to home, so in other words, they holidayed in Europe as opposed to, to heading as far afield as Asia and elsewhere. Um, we don't know how, how long this will last. It seems to be relatively well contained uh, in Asia at this point in time. Um, but if it were to continue, I, I, I think you would probably see a similar trend again with people uh, holidaying in Europe as opposed to going further afield. I mean... I... <laughs> I mean, it's an unusual spin on on what's uh, essentially an awful story. I mean, it's uh, and I think the, the toll is up to sort of nearly six hundred deaths now, isn't it? This this coronavirus. Oh, yeah, I'm with you, Matt. Six hundred deaths is what I heard so uh, so far. With um, are we there? Okay, with about fifteen hundred people uh, infected, as far as we know. Uh, not that many here in the U.S. just yet. But, um, well, I think we're going to talk about this a little more. It's also possible that this virus is a bit overhyped uh, because uh, it's not that different from the flu or from SARS. And, um, and, and, you know, it's a media situation. On the other hand, and not wishing to... Uh, Am I still there? Not wishing to make fun of it. Um, uh, you know, we don't know if uh, if Corona beer is the cause or the cure, but, but we have our, <laughs> our, our top people on it. And, right. uh, <laughs> oh. and we're going to investigate right, this absolutely. as much well, as we can. So. <laughs> Excellent. All right, Michael. Well, I'll leave you in charge of uh, sampling the wares to ensure that that, uh, that uh, nobody is going to come to any harm. Uh, we lost you there, Armando. Hopefully you're back now. Uh, what What were you just saying on the top of that? I think he's gone. He's gone. Okay. All right. The service has obviously dropped out then. So what we'll do then, if that's okay, we'll move on to story number three. Uh, and that one is with you anyway, Micah. So that's that's a bit of luck. <laughs> okay. Well, there we go. Well, this is from uh, Sky News. And it's one of those stories that's really amazing. It's not really a story about uh, anything that's happened. It's about a story that's going to happen. And Sky News has learned that a group called Sustainably... Sus 
Boy, easy for them to say. <laughs> yeah, 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 that is the, only the one corona you've had, is it? <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's the first one, but but, but we're checking on yeah, it. Of you course, know? absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm doing fine. Doing fine. <laughs> Good, lovely. <laughs> a group called Sustainable Aviation plans to unveil a joint pledge in an event with the Transport Secretary, Grant Chaps, next Tuesday. This will mark the sector's most significant intervention so far in efforts to take tackle climate change, although it is also likely to raise questions about the extent to which one of the world's most substantial carbon emitting industries can guarantee that it will meet its objectives. Sources said on Friday, that that's last Friday, that executives uh, from British Airways, EasyJet, Virgin Atlantic, Heathrow Airport, Manchester Airport Group, Airbus, Boeing, and Rolls-Royce Holdings would be among the signatories. One industry store said that the event was expected to go ahead despite the intensity of efforts to deal with the outbreak of the coronavirus in China, which has forced a frenetic response from airlines in the last few days. What does that have to do with this at all? Okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah, indeed. All right, then. I'm going to throw a question out to you all uh, then. So, uh, and also, I want to include the chat room in this. Let, let's get your, your feedback on it. We've got a nice, busy chat room tonight. So, let's get some feedback on this. So, I mean, do you honestly think it is possible uh, for the uh, aviation industry to achieve what, they, what they're referring to in this story as net zero carbon emissions? I mean, is that realistic? I mean,. You know, I think overall that it's pretty close to impossible unless they really come up with an electric aircraft, which is going to take forever, or maybe a nuclear-powered aircraft, or they find some other way of generating power. Because mm -hmm. unfortunately, carbon emissions is the way that we do it because you need to use currently kerosene is the most fuel-dense product or Jet A. It's the most fuel-dense product that works for us at this time. And I think what they can do is try to offset things, you know, that deal that we've heard is, we're going to plant a tree to offset carbon, but it just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't think it can really happen. And I don't think that the jet, while the airline industry does definitely have a carbon problem, it's nothing, as we've spoken about before, compared with a maritime industry that burns bunker fuel. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, in the chat room here, Jonathan Warner is saying that uh, how can fossil fuel burning engines be carbon neutral, which is a very good point. Uh, Chris Giriggs also adds, not anytime soon, uh, and without counting carbon offsetting. It's uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a, a mess there. I mean, I, I mean, uh, Armando, what what do you think? Your um, you know, where do you think this is going to go? Where the, where do you think the technology is going to go to? Uh, to achieve this i mean is there a, i mean everybody's sort of saying like electric electric cars and things as as a way of of solving this but uh, you know i mean can can there really be an electric plane i don't know from no, i guess Armando just dropped out oh, but of course um, he did, yes <laughs> you know, I, I suspect what they might be able to do is use an engine to generate power to power electric motors to power an airplane mm. but until they come up with something really new yeah. I'm not sure what they're going to be able to do. No. Uh, I, I really don't think that's going to happen. And what's the, the, there's flight shaming that's going on. That's a huge deal that people shouldn't fly at all because mm -hmm. they're creating all these problems. And, you know, I, I wonder about this whole global warming situation. There's no doubt that global warming is happening, but do we need to be looking at how we're going to stop it? Can it be stopped? Or do we need to be looking at what we're going to do mm. to live with it? Yeah. And that's what we're not really looking at right now. And I, that's what I'm concerned about. Yeah, no, quite. Uh, and uh, Armando, uh, I see you've, you've just come back. I mean, they're saying in, here in the chat room that um, 
Jonathan Jonathan Warner, for example, is saying that one of the biggest problems you've got, obviously, is generating the electricity required, um, you know, to to power all these aircraft. Uh, you know, where is that going to come from? I mean, at the moment, we don't have enough solar panels and all that kind of thing to do stuff like that. Uh, and Stephen H is saying there's no chance. It's physics to lift mass. You need energy. There's no chance you can obtain enough energy without hydrocarbons. Not anytime soon. Uh, and of course, one of the other things that's that's an issue here again that um, uh, like Jonathan Warner has has gone with is like, I mean these batteries uh, that are required to do this. I mean they they are in some respects the worst part. They're almost worse than the fossil fuels, aren't they? Trying to destroy you know dealing with them afterwards is a is a massive issue. The you are correct in all of your points. I'm going to be a devil's advocate here and say we have only had aviation for just over 100 years. So we're coming up on 120 years since we've started. And look at the advances that we've made in those 120 years from the Wright brothers uh, to where we are today. So the idea of having fully electric airplanes in the next 30 years, um, while it is daunting, uh, I, I don't think is entirely far-fetched. I know the military is working on it. They're working on uh, long endurance aircraft that are either solar or self-propelled as in you know, wind energy that is, that is channeled and funneled in a different way. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm not sure that it's entirely far-fetched. You know, we've got uh, the the airline, the small Part 135 airline flying uh, electric de Havilland's out in Seattle this year. So uh, I don't I don't know that we're that far off from it. No, no. I, I mean, so going back to the chat room here and uh, the airstick saying, I have no solutions. I think the 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 new uh, paradigm will look more like Airlander than an electric lawn dart, which which is interesting. Uh, Jacob Darlington Brown, uh, he's saying, uh, just because we can't do it now, uh, doesn't mean we shouldn't be developing the technology and trying, which makes a very very good point. Uh, Chris Creek says it's all fine once we have nuclear fusion. Uh, it's only ten years away, uh, just like it's. Been been for the last 50 plus that's a joke years. they've been saying that nuclear fusion <laughs> we're going to have nuclear fusion within 10 years right before i was born so, right okay um, right <laughs> okay and, and, and but you and know what's, what's interesting about what armando said is that uh, yeah i think we can definitely work on electric aircraft and we'll be able to have that with short range mm. but you know we had electric cars before we had yeah uh, well, well and, and, and tony's actually cars. saying nobody uh, tony's just saying in the chat room here nobody uh, would have thought that we'd have had 300 mile electric cars 10 years ago. So, yeah. Right. And, and, and an electric aircraft can work really well. What we need to develop is a really mm. good long extension cord. Yeah. Uh, right. Okay. I mean, that... Micah, do you remember those park flyers? That They've been around for, you know, probably 20 years or something like that. It had a little, little cord that you would just stand in the middle of a park and let the airplane fly around. It's electric powered. So we have it already. There we go. <laughs> Yeah, this is true. Uh, well, we'll take one. The the, the last point uh, in the chat room here we'll take from Stephen H. who says also, uh, what percentage of the world's population account for the passenger miles? Small percentage, I imagine. If everyone were to fly to the same extent, that's an even greater demand. So just for the privileged is the question he's 
asking. I don't know. It's uh, it's a debate that will go on and on. We'll perhaps come back to this, obviously, in, in uh, later shows, but we probably ought to move on now. Story number four. I'm hoping, Armando, while we've got you, uh, and we're talking helicopters this time. Yeah, I seem to always get the helicopter stories yeah, for some reason. Yeah, it's because you know a little, because they defy physics and you're the only one that understands them. <laughs> That's exactly how I would explain it to, well, both children and adults yeah. at air shows. Uh, standing next to my old aircraft was, uh, it, it really just defies physics. It's, yeah, absolutely. It beats the air into submission. I mean, I mean you, you know you know what my, my thoughts on it, isn't it? It's essentially that, you know, aeroplanes are created by engineers, helicopters are made at Hogwarts. It's as simple as that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, luckily, I flew one that was both, so there we go. Uh, right, well, yes, yeah, absolutely. A hybrid, if you will. <laughs> yeah. So this next story is from Flight, Goal, uh, Flight Global. Uh, Ericsson, the company, has signed a development agreement to integrate its S-64 air crane helicopter with Sikorsky's Matrix autonomous flight control software. The Portland, Oregon-based company plans to conduct an autonomous flight demonstration in 2021 using the technology. It disclosed at the Heli Expo trade show in Anaheim, California last month. The S-64's mechanical flight controls will be removed and replaced with a fly-by-wire system. It will be a process similar to Sikorsky's efforts in 2019 to transform a UH-60A, the oldest model of Black Hawk, into an autonomous helicopter. In particular, this company, Ericsson, believes the Matrix system's sense-and-avoid abilities could allow the S-64 to conduct firefighting water drops during night or in low-visibility situations, such as when the pilot's sight is clouded by smoke. We've had missions where the smoke was so bad we literally couldn't see the fire on the ground, so we were unable to drop water on the fire, says the vice president of aerosystems at Ericsson. We want to be able to expand how often we can operate in those conditions and do, and do so safely. Um, additionally, the vice president of Sikorsky Innovations adds that autonomy is a safeguard against cognitive overload for aerial firefighting pilots who may be distracted or overwhelmed when flying complex missions. Uh, previously, Sikorsky's matrix-controlled helicopters have relied on sensors such as LIDAR, uh, cameras and digi digital terrain obstacle databases to guide their autonomous flights. Uh, however, Ericsson is still determining what demonstration with the autonomous S-64, though the flight would likely include the helicopter showing its ability to do water drops and pickups, and the company may attempt to do a logistical demonstration after that. Um, so. This is a this is a great advancement, especially you know when we're talking about helicopters, uh, helicopter style missions that are often into just some of the most inhospitable aviation environments. Uh, you know, the article mentions firefighting missions, but there's you know it comes to mind uh, medevac. You know, there we have plenty of medevac helicopters here and in Europe and all over the world that are often tasked with flying into extremely tight spaces surrounded by power lines, by trees and signs and, and into a small field. And it's almost always at night in often in terrible weather. So they can, if Ericsson and Sikorsky can team up and come up with a system and prove that it works, I think it could absolutely revolutionize the way helicopters are employed in these situations, the level of safety that would be added to these missions. 
Now, Armando, I'm curious because you've flown in helicopters quite a bit, and uh, I've only had a couple of experiences. You know, we have autonomous flying aircraft that we've been able to do drone aircraft very easily for a long period of time. Is the reason you can't do it with a helicopter because you're so inherently unstable and, uh, and the pilot really needs to be able to feel things? We don't have computers that react quickly enough? I'm just curious yeah. why this hasn't happened before. We actually do have uh, a few autonomous helicopters. The Navy uses them. Um, they've got uh, they've converted some of the Bell, the old Bell 402s, uh, into complete autonomous unmanned vehicles. So it's uh, it's completely doable. That's great. Wow, it's uh, they, they still they still amaze me those things. I, I mean, it's uh, one of the nice things. Uh, 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 in the chat room, actually, uh, Jonathan Warner was saying those those sky cranes look absolutely awesome. Um, and uh, Jacob Darlington Brownie saying actually these would be pretty handy in Australia right now. Yeah, that's exactly why we put that story in there. Is yeah, you know, we obviously had the the mishap with the Colson air tanker uh, a couple of weeks ago now, and uh, it it's a, you know there, it takes just sheer gut and skill to fly some of these missions and my hats off to uh, any any pilot who who takes on a mission like this whether it's firefighting uh, sometimes even survey work can be quite dangerous medevac um, power lines if I, I remember when i was a kid seeing an imax film of a power line patrol helicopter pilots and i think it was at the air and space museum in downtown washington dc where these these individuals, these pilots, and and their engineers are flying two, three feet from an you know a high tension power line, and their the amount of electricity being generated and static electricity. It, there's just so many dangerous missions with, especially in the helicopter industry. Gosh, yeah, no, I can imagine. It's uh, it's. I mean, I mean, we we get the. Um... Sorry, I'm doing a lot of erring and ummings this week. There's so many buttons to press in here when I'm on my own. Sorry about that. Uh, the uh, We've got the uh, air ambulance, obviously, that uh, is a big part of, uh, especially in the rural community that, that we live in. Uh, and you, you you sort of see them landing in anything from churchyards to field. I mean, it's not just big fields that these helicopters land in to pick up their patients. I mean, they, I mean they're amazing uh, bits of kit, aren't they? It's... Uh, I don't know if we'd be able to survive without such things these days. Yeah, nowadays, if it's challenging to land on a motorway over in the UK. Yeah. Can you imagine a, yeah. an A road, you know, yeah. or even a B road? Yeah, a B road, yes, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a new experience, isn't it? That must be one of the things that you don't miss about being in the UK, Armando. <laughs> oh, you, you mean the possibility of death at every corner on a B road from a... <laughs> Running over a potato that fell off a truck or something right. like that? No, yes. I don't okay. miss that at all. Matt. Oh, right. Okay. We're going to move on uh, then. See if he's been, honestly, he's been. He, he's back. Oh, yeah. My, my captain over there in the left seat, uh, Megan, uh, she remembers, you know, when we were driving in England and there's bikers and pedestrians on your B roads. Yes, absolutely. I, I don't understand how people how take that 
take their lives into their own hands. Well, literally, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, all I would say is try in a uh, sort of forty-foot-long, uh, six-foot-six wide vehicle uh, on those B roads. That's a a real challenge. Anyway, enough of this. <laughs> yeah. So I'll uh, I'll take my hats off to both uh, helicopter medevac pilots as well as coach and lorry drivers. Lovely. In the UK. Okay, you're lovely. You can come again. Uh, we'll move on to the next story then, and uh, uh, this is on the chaviation.com website, and the headline is UK Skybus to close Nuki Hangar uh, from mid-2020. So Skybus um, in uh, and uh, Land's End has announced that it will close its hangar at Newquay in May 2020 and will consolidate its engineering at Land's End base following a reduction in its fleet complexity. The airline's owner and operator, the Isles of Scilly Steamship uh, Group, said in a press statement, the decision to vacate Newquay was due to the company moving to operate one type of aircraft instead of two. Up until recently, Skybus had opened four BN2s uh, but its fleet has now consolidated to three DHC-6 Dash 300s to stem its losses. Speaking to CH Aviation, a spokeswoman, spokesman said for the group, uh, we have taken the decision not to renew our lease at the hangar at Newquay as part of our strategy to move Skybus to a stronger financial position. This decision does not impact our current flight schedule from Newquay. According to the CH uh, Aviation Schedules module, Skybus operates 22 weekly flights from St Mary's to Land's End and six weekly flights uh, to Newquay. Um, now, I'll just, I'll just try and describe, uh, for those of you who don't know the UK very well, um, let's see, so the Isle, the Isle of Scilly uh, is basically, if you go right down to the bottom left of the UK, uh, there's a little group of islands right at the very bottom. It's, I suppose it's not a hook, obviously, but uh, uh, right down the bottom uh, is the Isles of Scilly. And again, Newquay is also more or less right at the very tip. So we're talking sort of quite short flights, essentially. Um, but I dare say these flights are, are, are very crucial to um, you know their uh, their operations, if you like, to getting uh, provisions to and, and from the island. So uh, it's uh, sort of closing bases and hangars is uh, never usually a good sign uh, in regard to these flights continuing. So fingers crossed, uh, it is just a, strate- a strategic move as they say, and uh, not sort of cutting the island off with uh, regular flights, which would be a, a terrible shame. Uh, well, Are they really called the Scilly Islands, or is it Scilly? Uh, no, no it, well, here we say the Isle, the Isle of Scilly, so uh, uh, it's... <laughs> but it does have I'm a, just curious. It, it, it does it, have it, a C in it. I will give you that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I, I, was, I wasn't sure, because if that's <laughs> the case, I'm wondering if that's where, you know, where the uh, Scilly Walks came from. Uh, right, yes. Oh, you're, you're thinking sort of Monty Python's Flying Circus, and... Yeah. I'm Always thinking Monty Python flying. Circuits. Absolutely, That's part of my problem. Yeah, we'll, we'll we, yes, we'll be talking about parrots in no time, won't we? Uh, okay, so <laughs> let's move on to the next story. I forgot, uh, Micah. I think you've got the next story. This is with Simple Flying. Yes, and uh, with Simple Flying, and this is uh, dated February fourth. A Qatar Airways Boeing triple seven three hundred ER was forced to make an unusual diversion. The flight from Doha to Bangkok made an emergency landing in Calcutta, India, after a number of after the number of passengers increased by one. You might say, how would the number of passengers increase? Well, at 3 a.m., a baby boy unexpectedly joined the travelers at 35,000 feet. Now, the birth of a baby, while always considered a miracle, 
But this particular baby made a spectacular entrance to the world while traveling above it. A 23-year-old Thai woman gave birth to a healthy baby boy at 3 a.m. on the Qatar Airways flight to Bangkok. The aircraft landed safely in India at 3.09 a.m. after the pilot asked for a priority landing due to a medical emergency. And um, the Independent reported that a doctor also on board was able to assist with the birth. It's not known exactly how premature the birth was. And Qatar Airways policy is not to allow pregnant mothers to fly after 36 weeks. But the woman was transported to a hospital in India and is said to be doing well. And uh, there's a lovely photo of the woman with her baby on the, on the website. And what really comes up that I thought was interesting is there's a question of citizenship. Um, some, uh, uh, some countries say that the citizen, citizenship is based on the, uh, the uh, citizenship of the parents. Uh, and then there are some countries that say that it's soli, uh, which means a right of soil. And that case is a baby born in the country is or in its airspace or its nautical boundary would be granted citizenship like here in the USA. And then there are uh, some countries that say that if you're born on that aircraft, it's the aircraft of nationality. So we don't know where this is going to be, but a uh, very interesting story and a really fun story. I, well, I mean, what, what, what do you think the citizenship should be? I mean, I guess I, I, if you're, you know, I don't know if you're, say, if you're say flying over Dubai or you're flying, um, you know, over, over, you know, the island of Hawaii or something like that. I mean, uh, should that be the citizenship of the of where you know of the the, the little baby boy or or girl? Or Here in it... the USA, uh, the the baby would be granted probably dual citizenship. It would be the citizenship of the mother. And if it was over U.S. airspace, the mother could claim citizenship here in the U.S.A. perfectly legally. Wow. Okay. That's. <laughs> I just. I've not really thought of that. Really. It's. Uh, so you could be. You know. You could be flying over Spain, give birth, and then you could end up with dual citizenship potentially. Uh, perhaps the rules aren't the same here in Europe. And this is why there have been some issues, and uh, I, I'm not going to get into the uh, political aspects of it, but. Uh, um, Many um, Chinese women, there are Chinese tourist agencies that will have uh, uh, work with, with women who are pregnant to fly to the USA to have their children born in the USA so that they can claim U.S. citizenship. <laughs> wow. No, I like that. That's uh, It's a nice story, and everybody's uh, all well, which is the main thing. Uh, right, Armando, if you are there, the next story is with you, and it's uh, one that sort of hit... Uh, a story that sort of hit towards the end of this week, actually. Um, and, um, you know, it's never a good sign when, when airlines start selling jets. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, first of all, on the last story, it's always amazing how there's there's always a doctor on board, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, they've you know they're, they're always on holiday if Doctor Steph is anything to go by. <laughs> yeah, all these conferences. Yes. I'm making air quotes since I don't have my video on. No, conferences, <laughs> everything. <laughs> ah, yeah, quite. <laughs> yeah. So this next story from the AP, the Associated Press, Abu, Dhab Abu Dhabi's long-troubled Etihad Airways said Tuesday that it's selling 38 aircraft to an investment firm and le uh, leasing company in a deal valued at 1 billion US dollars. The latest cost cut cutting measure by the United Arab Emirates national carrier. Etihad said that it would sell 38 aircraft, 22 Airbus A330s and 16 Boeing 777-300ERs in the deal with investment firm KKR and leasing firm Altavere uh, Air Finance. KKR said the Boeing 777-300ERs will be leased back to Etihad upon purchase in early 2020. 
while the Airbus A330s will go to international clients. Etihad move, uh, described the move as being in line with the third year of its transformation program. This deal offers up the flexibility while ensuring we stand by our sustainability targets and maintain a fleet of the most fuel-efficient, techni- technologically advanced aircraft. Uh, Etihad's website it's, uh, lists itself as having a fleet of 102 aircraft. It no longer lists A330s among its fleet, having said it would begin phasing those aircraft out. Uh, the 16 Boeing 777s it will sell and lease back uh, represent 15% of its current fleet. Um, this article goes on a little bit, gets into some details about how they've lost a total of 4.7 by 4.75 billion U.S. dollars wow. uh, recently since 2016. Gosh, yeah. So, so it's not like they lost that last year. They no. did that over over four years. Oh right. Well, that yeah. that that's suddenly a lot easier yeah. to swallow then. Million dollars a year. It's, it's just pocket change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I suppose the one thing that, that that is highlighted by by stories like this is is the the the, the number money numbers involved in in running airlines and that it really is quite a sort of quite frightening. These numbers, isn't it? I mean, it's. I, 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 again, if you again, yeah. look at the Ryanair model and you sort of think, you know, how are you able to go to Toulouse from Stansted for 20 quid return? Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, it, it's, it'd be interesting to know how much it actually costs to fly. So say you were going to do a flight from, say, Heathrow to uh, Washington. I mean, how, how, how much it actually costs to do that flight. Never mind what the airline is making on top of that. The actual costs involved, by the time you've paid for cabin crew and the food and all that kind of thing, what it actually costs to go from end to end, including airport fees and stuff like that, be be fascinating. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that that number is that hard to find out. I think if we did a little bit of research for next week, we could probably find out with some... Uh some numbers actually there we go i'll tell you what let's let's throw that open to the chat room shall we? we've got a nice busy chat room uh they like a project so somebody go away and tell me roughly how much it would cost to say i don't know let, let's say i don't know what what what, what we've got the uh, 767 would fly into uh washington wouldn't it quite regularly uh how much that would cost to fly from heathrow into Washington, let's say Washington Dulles, as I call it, or Dulles, uh, and um, you know, by the time you've got all the cabin crew and stuff, how, how much it would cost in dollars to actually put that flight on? There we are. Yeah, off you I'll go. take Tra- that data for any aircraft. It yeah. would be interesting to see the difference between a an older seven six seven and a seven eight seven or an eight three fifty. That's a good com- compromise. Okay, some, somebody go away and do that. Uh, meanwhile, while that's happening, I will take the next story. And uh, it's a, um, again, slightly worrying, uh, again, the coronavirus uh, related again. This is on the Reuters website, Reuters.com. And the headline is, Cathay Pacific asks employees to take unpaid leave as virus hits demand. Uh, so the story's actually come out of Sydney uh, from the Reuters uh, site uh, Hong Kong's Cathay Pacific Airways uh, has asked its 27,000 employees to take three weeks of unpaid leave, saying uh, saying preserving cash was key for the carrier and that conditions were as grave as during the 2009 financial crisis due to the virus outbreak. So Cathay is also asking suppliers for price reductions, uh, putting in place hiring freezes. Um, 
postponing major projects and stopping all non-critical spending, Chief Executive Augustus Tang said in a video message to staff seen by Reuters. On Tuesday, the carrier said it blamed the cut, uh, it, it planned, sorry, to cut around 30% of capacity over the next two months, including around 90% of flights to mainland China. Cathay had already experienced a sharp fall in demand since the middle of last year due to widespread, sometimes violent anti-government protests in Hong Kong. The virus, which has led to a death toll of nearly 600 people now, has uh, led to a further drop in visitors and passengers transitioning through Hong Kong's airport. Uh, this has been one of the most difficult Chinese New Year holidays we've ever had, uh, Tang said in the video. We don't know how long it will last. With such uncertainty, with such an uncertain outlook, preserving our cash is now key to protecting our business. A few hours after the video was released, Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam announced any visitors from mainland China would need to undergo a compulsory quarantine for 14 days. Cathay said in a statement it was appealing to all employees to participate in the unpaid leave scheme that will run from the 1st of March to the 30th of June. Tang said it was the first time the company had offered an unpaid leave scheme since 2009 while demand plummeted due to the a global financial crisis. Uh, we had the overwhelming support of our employees he said about to, uh, the 2009 scheme it made an enormous difference the situation now is just as grave and I ask for the same commitment uh, to the future from you I mean I, I won't go on because there is more to this but um, I mean that's a that's a very drastic step isn't it and of course I mean these people have still got to you know presumably they've still got mortgages and bills and electricity and things to pay for uh, three months is a long time essentially to go Oh, no, sorry, three weeks, sorry, is, is a long time to go without pay. It's a very difficult situation, but, you know, it, it comes about because most of these viruses, the SARS, the flu, yeah. uh, coronavirus, usually take place during the winter. And yeah. when spring comes, you know, they generally kind of peter themselves out on their own. And the airlines are using losing a fortune, not just because of passengers, but you have to remember that airlines coming from China have huge cargo holds. And many of our items that we get from Amazon or Walmart or wherever are coming from China. And they're because the airlines aren't flying, they're not delivering. And because they're not delivering, they're not making money. So they've got to save the money someplace if they're going to stay in business. Yeah, I feel horrible for these folks. But, uh, yeah. Oh, nasty. Story. You know, I saw a, uh, I guess to make light of the situation, I saw something on Facebook that said, hey, before you start popping all those, uh, the uh, the bubble wrap, just remember it was packaged in China. <laughs> right. Okay. The air inside the bubbles is from China. Yes, yes, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a slightly uh, unusual take on it. I wonder I'm not sure that's uh, right. Okay, that's not you're fair. welcome, and you can thank the internet for that. One. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. I'll um, I'll write to them immediately with uh, voicing my complaint. Uh, <laughs> while we've got you, Armando, perhaps we can get you to move on to the next story, please. Speaking of, uh, amid the global outbreak of deadly China-originated novel coronavirus. Uh, Pakistan has decided to resume its flight operations to the Asian giant, said an aviation official. Joint Secretary Aviation Division Abdul Sattar Kokar said the flight operations between the two countries, uh, that being Pakistan, uh, will resume on Monday. On January 31st, Pakistan had suspended flights to China in the wake of the deadly outbreak, which has killed 361 
people in China. As of this uh, article writing, I think it's, it's quite a bit more than that now. A Southern China Airlines flight carrying 150 passengers will land at the Islamabad airport on Monday at 9 in the morning. They said, uh, adding that the notification regarding the flight suspension was issued only until February 2nd. Meanwhile, the Pakistani government is also ramping up its defenses against the with, uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, uh, <laughs> someone there declaring uh, it's five northern districts most sensitive due to fear of the mysterious illness. Uh I mean, I mean, it yeah. seems a very odd thing. You think when, uh, you know, lots of airlines, and including airlines here in the UK, I mean, the UK government has advised that, you know, people, if, if they are in uh, China, that they need to come home, essentially. Uh, it seems very odd, if you like, that Pakistan is essentially resuming flights uh, into China. I mean, I, 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 I don't know what, what the thinking is behind that. Well, maybe, maybe it's a business move. Possibly. They can fill up some airplanes if nobody else is flying. Well, that's true. I suppose people will still want to go there and do business, won't they? Um, it's um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Really. I mean, what do you reckon, Micah? Uh, the it, it's just a very difficult situation. Mm. But well, I think we should move on to the next story. Good about point. The coronavirus, yeah. because that talks about it in a way that I've been thinking about it for a long time. Okay. This is a, uh, a column. It's not a news story. It's a column by Patrick Smith, mm -hmm. who writes a column weekly called Ask the Pilot. And he actually has a book out called Ask the Pilot. He also has a book out called Cockpit Confidential, where he talks about flying and all the things you might want to know about commercial flying. He's a pilot for a major airline. He's controversial a little bit with, with, with some, and there are some people that, that like him and some people that don't. But I've always enjoyed reading his columns. And this is February 4th, and I'm going to read a little bit of it to you. And he says, as the headlines have it, we're half a step away from the end of civilization, a global health emergency, deadly virus, lockdown. Now, Patrick Smith is based in Boston. So he says, here in Boston, the mayor urges residents to stay calm. At the airlines, crews were refusing to staff China-bound flights until carriers pulled the plug entirely. United, American, and Delta have all suspended flights to China until spring at the soonest. Several European, Asian, and African airlines have done the same. On a Sri Lankan Airlines flight dispatched to Wuhan, a crew... The crew wore full hazmat suits aboard a U.S. domestic flight last weekend. A flight attendant wore a mask. I'm probably overreacting, she explained, but I don't want to die, and so on. <laughs> All of this over a virus that gives you the proverbial flu-like symptoms, and then, for the vast majority of, it, of its victims, move on moves on. Sure, a small number have died, most of them elderly or compromised by other illnesses. That's the case with many viruses that, for the most part, result in no permanent harm. Imagine for a moment the panic we'd be seeing if this truly were a dangerous pandemic capable of killing millions, something unknown and untreatable. But consider that in the United States this winter, 180,000 people have been hospitalized for influenza. Close to 10,000 have died, including 68 children. Globally, between 3 and 5 million people are expected to contract the flu, killing 650,000 of them. That's the flu. Normal old season influenza. We've been dealing with it for months now. Where were the crews refusing to fly, the canceled flights, isolating the entire cities and crowds stampeding for paper masks? Un unless I'm missing something in the logic, our yearly grapple with the flu should have brought air travel to a grinding halt. And that's... This the story goes on from there, but it's it's very interesting, and and I think that's 
where we are with the coronavirus. I think we have stopped things that uh, and, and, and panicked about it based on social media. And it may not, we don't know, it may not be anything, but we're fighting dragons, dragons that we can't see. And so we get frightened of. And by the way, so far, so good. I haven't come down with anything and I'm feeling much better. <laughs> Lovely. Cheers, Micah. Uh, uh, for those listening to the audio version, Micah is currently enjoying a bottle of Corona beer. Corona beer. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. There we go. Uh, well, uh, we'll move on to the next story then. <laughs> I'm curious what the chat room thinks about this, honestly, because... Yeah. Um, you know, I can understand the concerns. There's no vaccine. There's nothing we can do. But mm. the numbers are way down considering yeah. how the 1918 flu, this was a huge Spanish flu pandemic yeah. in, in worldwide, killed millions of people and people would wake up healthy and die that night. We're not having anything like this. Yeah. This isn't Ebola. This isn't anything like that. So I think that it's something to be. I mean, uh, I, I, I get about. Again, I suppose it's one of those, isn't it? I think the the, the trouble is, is this is uh, that there are just so many questions in the air about this, as you say. I mean, we we might look at this again in a year's time and sort of think, oh, what was all that fuss about? You know, because it essentially is another strain of flu. Um, it, it's uh, uh, Chris Griggs was saying, uh, start sneezing and you get a whole row to yourself if you're on a plane. Um, and uh, I mean, Tony's right. I mean, I, I, I'm, I think I'm with Tony with this. You can understand uh, their concerns as there is no vaccine. Um, you know, it's uh, it's going to be um, it's going to be a funny one, isn't it? I, and I, we certainly haven't heard the end of uh, uh, of this story, have we? It's just, uh, and of course, uh, I think it was reported this uh, today, wasn't it, that the the doctor who uh, was sort of saying that this is a rather rampant. Um, a strain of um, the because because this is the first time that co- the coronavirus does already exist in a form, isn't it? This is just a new strain of that same virus, isn't it? It's not something that's completely unknown. Uh, it's just this this particular strain is something that hasn't. Uh, been sort of sin before i guess but uh, we aren't a medical show we're not able to <laughs> offer uh, any explanation and sadly uh, dr steph is not uh, available I at the moment just so. going to say that <laughs> yeah. just have, dr steph should have been the guest yeah uh, yeah absolutely she sort of chipped in but uh, there we are i dare say there will be more about this story um and you know as you say you've got pakistan who's now starting to fly again um british airways and, and many other carriers who are deciding not to fly into and out of china i mean it's uh, we just got to wait to uh, wait for the dust to settle, I guess, and, and see how it all pans out. But uh, we'll move on to the next story. And uh, this is on NJ.com. And the headline is Dentist by Day, Pilot by Night. 83-year-old is flying around the world for a cause. So uh, on weekends, the Galkin brothers, uh, it's a bit a bit like the Kapalski. Um, the, how do I say that? The Kapalski? I'm trying to. I'm opening it up right. No, 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 now. no, no, no. no. Um, is the the Kaplach, you, you and um, oh, um, not Eric. Eric. No. Oh, Kreplach. That's it. <laughs> That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, on weekends, the Gulkin brothers uh, spend hours at Newark Airport watching planes take off and land when they were kids. Uh, the outing was all their father could afford when he drove uh, his boys Edwin and Sam to the obs- observation tower in the 1940s. He didn't have much money, um, but uh, the brothers had lots of imagination, especially Edwin, who was seven years old at the time. Wouldn't it be nice to eventually fly one of those planes, he said. 
recalling that childhood thought recently at his dental office in Woodbridge. Uh, wheels up, Edwin's dream became his reality. Decades later, the 83-year-old uh, uh, period... Is it period... Periodontist? Periodontist. Uh, periodontist. What's that? I don't know what that is. Uh, Gum specialist. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. Anyway, he's an avid general aviation pilot. In nearly 50 years, he's flown around the world three times, logging more than a million miles in his 1976 single engine Cessna aircraft. Uh, the first time was an adventure in 1988 with a friend. The last two voyages were more serious. They've raised awareness and money to combat debilitating diseases, one of them for Alzheimer's in memory of his brother. He'll do it again on the 25th of March for Sam, who was 83 when he died, three years ago of complications from the awful disease. He didn't know who he was, Edwin said. He didn't know his name. It was a very sad ending for a great guy. But uh, great guys have great brothers. Edwin's global flight in 2018 collected $9,425 to benefit the Alzheimer's Association when he graced the skies under Flight for Alzheimer's, uh, the banner of his mission. This time, Edwin is hoping for donations. Check out www.flyforthecure.org. That's www.flyforthecure.org. Uh, top $25,000... Uh, for his fourth world tour. He's taking the 40-day journey, which ends the 8th of May, with Mark Seaman and a pilot and an aerial photographer of 32 years. Um, it's uh, it's uh, So they'll leave uh, Manville and travel some 23,000 miles, landing in 18 places from Newfoundland, Greece and Thailand to Japan, Russia and Alaska before heading home uh, through Grand Forks, North Dakota. Uh, the longest leg, Abu Dhabi, in uh, a city in the United Arab, Arab Emirates to Nagpur in India is 1,726 miles. At each spot, they'll spend a few days Days. The public can follow them on social media and donate after Edwin and Seaman post pictures with narrative of the trip. I mean, it's a great sort of feel-good story. What a great cause. Uh, I can't believe he's, he's 83 years old, uh, though, carrying out uh, a, a crazy challenge like that. Absolutely crazy. But uh, let's hope, because uh, it's an awful disease, and I'm sure we all know people who've been touched by it. Uh, let's hope that they raise uh, lots of money for a great, uh, great, great cause. It's uh, was that anyone interesting? Just out of interest, Michael. <laughs> well, um, you know, you were talking about a periodontist. That was unfortunately my dermatologist. Oh, right. oh, right. so I had to take the call. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I apologize for that, but it had to go. <laughs> I didn't want to comment on this though. No, 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 no. Sorry. This no. was Woodbridge, New Jersey, my old stomping ground. I grew up right around there. Yeah. And, uh, and they talked about you know this uh, this older gentleman that was taken by his father to Newark Airport because they couldn't afford anything else. Mm. And, my mother, when and I have a picture of her when she was like three years old, her father, my grandfather, used to take her out to Floyd Bennett Field to watch planes because, again, they couldn't afford anything else. And that was in the uh, in the mid-30s. So she she never got learned to fly, but she loved aircraft. And uh, and, uh, and a lot of people start that way just by going to visit an airport. Like yeah, that. yeah, absolutely. Well, let's hope he raises lots and lots of money. Now, are you still with us, Armando? 
Fingers crossed. You're still here. Way excellent. Oh, the service is not doing too badly at all, is it? Uh, so we're going to move. No, on. we just had that one hiccup. Okay, yeah. Let, let's hope that's the only one we're going to have for the for the. So we're going to do. We're now going to do a top ten, all being well. Uh, that that's sort of providing I can press all the buttons correctly. Uh, and <laughs> he's try, I'm trying to get the theme to load. That's why I'm. That's why I'm talking amongst ourselves for a minute. So uh, uh, it's Ryanair um, have released a rather unique. Uh, top 10 and it's Ryanair reveals the top 10 most trip worthy destinations for 2020 so we'll uh, we'll um, we'll run down the top 10 and we'll start with Micah when I say in 10 Tel Aviv Israel <laughs> in 9 a lovely place Marseille France in 8 Beirut, Lebanon. And seven. Good luck with this one. <laughs> Tbilisi, Georgia. The country, not the state. Of course. And six. Verona, Italy, the home of the two men that Shakespeare wrote about. And <laughs> five. It is indeed a very lovely place. Palanga, Lithuania. And four. Santander, Spain. And <laughs> three. That would be Galway, Ireland. And two. Yerevan, Armenia. And Bully's special prize. We're all booking our tickets right now. It's Ponta Delgada, Portugal. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, ironically, the one place that they do list on that... Um on that uh, top ten, there the, the the only Irish airport that they've actually listed, Galway, isn't actually one Ryanair fly into. So quite what they were thinking about there, I don't know. But uh, there we go. As I suppose, I suppose it's one. Maybe it's maybe it's foreshadowing on O'Leary's part. <laughs> yeah, perhaps perhaps he's got a holiday home there somewhere. Perhaps he's planning yeah, to start a next. Route. Yeah. Next week we'll do the story about how they're opening a crew base and building a hangar. <laughs> I'm yeah. re- relocating from Newquay to Galway. Galway, yeah, absolutely, yeah, possibly, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm not even sure there's. E- I might be wrong. Somebody will correct me. I'm sure, but I'm not even sure there is actually even an airport in Galway. But, but uh, I think there was a few years ago, certainly. But uh, anyway, there we go. That's uh, that's just galling. I gotta say. Oh, I see what you did there. Yes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, so uh, let's let, let, let's try this again then, because we had it. We had a nice little discussion earlier. So where would you like to go? This is for the chat room. Where would you like to go in 2020 on holiday? What airlines would you like to fly? There you are. That's, uh, that's... I want to fly Virgin Atlantic to London so I can visit ah, with all my buddies over there yeah. and hopefully go to Duxford with them. Absolutely. Oh, oh Micah, you will love Duxford. <laughs> you know, I've, uh, Megan and I have talked about this quite a bit this year, mm. and it continues to come up. I think... We, we have a tie for our number one destination for the next big vacation, and it's either Tokyo mm-hmm. or New Zealand. We've met so many people from New Zealand this year that are just uh, asking us to come down there, and they every time, every single one of them describes the islands, the two islands. It's, it sounds just wonderful. So I think that's moving uh, pretty, pretty quickly up our list of places to go. Fantastic! No, that that's and of uh, course Bungie East East Anglia. Is of course, nice to yes, go absolutely, to. yes. I mean, it, it, sort of flying into Bungie is a little bit of a challenge. 
Um, you know, Beckles, I think, is the nearest you can get. Uh, but at least that's not far away, I suppose. Uh, and there's uh, in the chat room here a, 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 a Paul a Paul Tricker, um, who is actually a very, very local listener. He, he's actually in Beckles, as I just mentioned. Uh, so any airline, I don't care. I just want to fly is what he's saying. I think that's I think there's something to be said for that. Jonathan Warner says Switzerland on Swiss Air. And uh, Chris Greig says, I've got a trip to Helsinki booked to kick off, uh, to tick off the A350. Ooh, can we have another passenger experience on that one, please? I think that'll be good. It, um, yeah. Just don't bring any coffee in the cockpit on that A350. Just, you know, <laughs> keep it on your seat. Uh, right. <laughs> yes, quite. Oh, dear. Never mind. All right. Okay. We're going to move on then to uh, a part of the show that I absolutely love. And uh, perhaps I could uh, trouble you, Micah, to uh, introduce it for us. Well, I have just been loving this series, and Nev and Captain Nick have been doing just a wonderful job. And in this particular episode, John reveals that while Concorde was a much-loved aircraft, it, well, is a much-loved aircraft now, that back in 1975-76, it was considered very much a poison chalice by the British Overseas Aircraft Corporation. That's BOAC. John, in your book, you quote an article that reminds us that both British Airways and Air France had the whole supersonic field to themselves. With that in mind, do you think we did the best we could with that advantage? I think so. I mean, I'm not going to speak for Air France. I think British Airways, to start with, didn't want the aeroplanes. I mean, back in 1975, 1976, it was a nationalized airline and basically what happened was the British government just said to BOAC, here are seven Concords, you are going to take them. And the management of BOAC at that time said, we don't know what to do with an airplane like this. Doesn't they were only interested in sort of bums on seats and mass travel and a premium product like that just didn't fit into their corporate thinking at all. But, you know, they were compelled to take it on. And the first few years of the Concorde operation was very touch and go as to, you know, whether or not it was going to work. Mm. It was largely thanks to the drive of a chap called Captain Brian Walpole, who absolutely campaigned vigorously for a change in attitude in the corporate management of the uh, of corporate thinking of the airline, ably assisted by a chap who subsequently went on to become uh, flight Operations Director um, in British Airways, although at that time he was a first officer, a chap called Jock Lowe, who will be a name that's known to many people. Mm. And those two between them really sort of drove the Concorde project forwards. But it wasn't, it wasn't until the airline was privatised and John King subsequently to become Lord King of Watnaby. It wasn't until he arrived on the scene 
that Concord really came into its own. And one of the first things he did was to say to Brian Walpole, look, I, you can put your money where your mouth is. You've been going on and on about Concord and how it can make money. We'll set up Concord as an operating division in its own right in, Brit in British Airways, and you see what, whether, whether you can make it work. And it did. And the key milestone, I suppose, was clearance into New York. And the first flight into New York was in uh, November 1977. And that ended up as two scheduled services a day, the Speedbird 1 and the Speedbird 3. One left at 10.30 in the morning, the other 7 o'clock in the evening. And that was the bread and butter of the whole Concorde operation. British Airways, having got this completely transformed corporate management led by Lord King and Colin Marshall, um, they were willing to develop the Concorde into all sorts of areas. And we ended up going to places like Toronto. We went to Barbados on a regular basis. Um, we did round the world flights all, and charter flights. Um, and it was a highly successful operation and very, very profitable for the airline because what people tend to overlook is that British Airways never actually paid for those airplanes. They paid a sort of token sum of money as a transactional thing to acquire these seven airplanes. So they never had to write off the capital cost of seven Concorde. That hulls. probably would have brought the airline down. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Probably would have done because who knows. It was a humongous amount of money. Yeah, humongous amount of money. So really, basically, my attitude has always been that British Airways was simply the custodian of those seven mm. Concords on behalf of us, the taxpayer. Interesting. And I love it. Having, but having acquired those airplanes on that basis, with that new management in place, that gave a completely fresh drive to the whole way the airplane, the whole way the airline operated, not just Concorde. And it was they made it. They created an airline that I was very, very proud to work for. And I think everybody who worked in British Airways in the sort of mid to late eighties. They really felt that they were working for an airline that was pretty damn special, I can tell you. Um, so I think the answer to the question is that British Airways certainly, once we got this new team of management in place, did exploit that airplane to the full amount that it was possible to exploit it. Because you have to remember that it could only fly over oceans or over deserts. It wasn't cleared for f supersonic overflight over populated areas. And you couldn't fly it subsonic for any length of time. Flying Concorde subsonic was a disaster. You lost about 30 to 40% of your range oh, wow. flying at subsonic speeds. Mm. It was a vehicle that was designed for one thing and one thing only 
that was to fly at twice the speed of sound. It's interesting. Had Boeing managed to create a, an equivalent, uh, uh, and the Russians T-144, had that turned out to be a much more successful aircraft, do you think that would have, in the end, helped Concorde? Because the market would have been now quite impressive for uh, supersonic transport around the world. Well, I think if Boeing had produced one, it could well have done, because here, here, here is a, an element of cynicism, I'm afraid. I've, I think there wouldn't have been any problem if it had been a Boeing supersonic airliner for it to have a supersonic corridor east to west across the United States. No, I think you're probably right. But who are we to say? Who are we to say? <laughs> well, suffice to say the SR-71 used to fly at supersonic speeds over the Interesting. mainland United States. Mm -hmm. The space shuttle, when it came in from space, was always supersonic as it came in towards uh, Kennedy Space Center. So, you know, there we are. Yes. I so, mustn't be cynical about the Americans, <laughs> though, because I can tell you that the New Yorkers absolutely love Concord. Took them a bit of convincing, though, didn't it? But once they were convinced, they yeah. were on board 100, 150%. Well, I, I have to agree, yeah. Now, I found it fascinating, some of your stories of the passengers on board, because I always associated bad behavior and uh, incidents with uh, low-cost carriers. But there you are on Concorde with a mad lady and a Swiss army knife. I know, I know. Absolutely bonkers. <laughs> Going around stabbing people. <laughs> yeah, so it, it wasn't it just uh, the Ryanairs of this world. No, no. I've actually had somebody arrested as well. So oh, really? Tell yes. Us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're about to start up at Heathrow, and the chief steward comes up and says, I've got a bit of a problem, Captain. And I said, what's the problem? He said, this chap's refusing to extinguish his cigarette and refusing to do up his seatbelt. So I said, oh, dear, I'd better come back and see him, sir get out of my seat, go to the wardrobe, put on my jacket, put on my hat, march down the cabin. There's this chap sitting there, all strapped in, good as gold. And I just went up to him. I said very politely, oh, thank you very much, sir. Delighted to see you've strapped yourself in. We can get on our way. He unstrapped himself, stood up, pulled a pack of cigarettes out of his pocket, stuck one in his mouth, lit it up and blew smoke all over me. <laughs> so I said, oh, I see. I said, I'm terribly sorry, so I'm not going to be taking you. And I went off the airplane. I said to the dispatcher, could you get the police here, please? And the police sergeant and two constables arrived. And we went down in line astern, down the length of the airplane, back to where this chap was sitting. And once again, he's sitting there, all strapped in there, and no sign of a cigarette. And the policeman, police sergeant, asked the passenger to unstrap himself and, and get ready to get off the aeroplane. And this chap says, well, I'm doing what I'm told. I've got the seatbelts fastened and, and, you know, I've extinguished my cigarette. No, 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 said the police sergeant, you don't understand. The captain isn't actually going to take you. And I could see at this stage some doubt creeping into this 
police sergeant's face. You know, it was sort of my word against this passenger's word. And he was beginning to feel a bit uncomfortable. But anyway, he stuck with it and he put his hand on this passenger's shoulder and said, come on, sir, we'll get your cabin bags. We'll get the cabin crew to take that off. And as he put his hand on this chap's shoulder, he rounded on this police sergeant and said, take your effing hands off me or I'll thump your face in. <laughs> Whereupon the police sergeant got a very benign expression on his face and he started rocking to and fro on his balls of his feet to his heels. And he said, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, he said, threatening a police officer in the course of his duty. He said, I'm terribly sorry, sir, you're under arrest. <laughs> <laughs> so he was then frog-marched off with these two police constables, um, and later to appear in Uxbridge Magistrates Court, where he was fined for considerable sum of money for disrupting a flight. Excellent. There's a nice tale piece to the story, however. About six months later, a letter finally got through to me. It was addressed to the Captain Speedbird 1, uh, London Heathrow Airport. You know, it's sort of rather sort of vague addressing. And eventually it worked its way through British Airways internal mail system and got to me. And it was a letter from this passenger. And it was apologising for his behaviour. Oh, really? He, oh, wow. he was um, on medication for some medical condition. He'd been told not to combine drinking with that medication. He had been drinking because he was a nervous passenger. And that concoction, that cocktail mix of booze with the medication is what triggered off this irrational behavior. And he said, I just wanted to apologize and tell you what it was that lay behind it. He said, I'm not normally like that. Interesting. So he had the grace to apologize. I mean, this has just been such a fascinating series. And I, well, I mean, he seemed like a really nice man. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Can you, am I back with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I had a bit of a technical glitch here. All of a sudden my internet went down, I believe due to the ice storm. Oh, and, gosh. Uh, so I'm uh, back through my phone, different angle on me. Of course, you get to see my lovely beard. <laughs> Absolutely. There we go. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, as I say, it's been a, a, a great series, this. And uh, of course, we're now sort of starting to learn a bit about his time on Concord, which is, which is great, as I say. And he seems like a lovely man, this, 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 this chap. <laughs> you know, I, I love this whole series. I, I've said it every time we play it out, but it's so... I'm always just so impressed at, at the calmness that these individuals, captains of of his caliber, talk about these just these experiences and how calm he just says, you know, hey, the sergeant rocking back on. <laughs> Exactly. Under arrest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's excuse, great. Excuse me, sir. You're under arrest. Yeah, that's just that was brilliant. Uh, it's been a game. Anyway, and as as Nick said, you know, it's not the Ryanairs of our time. We talk about, you know, the recent the recent stories with United's woes and Ryanairs punch ups mm. and all that stuff. You know, it's just just a, a classy era where you can just take somebody in. 
Pull them off the airplane. But I can say, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't have sort of thought really that that something like Concorde, you know, where they're where they're doing these these, you know, what? Let, let, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, these were essentially flights for the elite, weren't they? People who were, you know, because it wasn't a cheap way of getting to New York. I mean, it was an efficient way, um, or let me rephrase that: it was a fast way of getting to uh, New York. But I mean, you, you did pay for that privilege. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting about that is when they first started the fare, they had it much lower and they did some fare tests and they found out they could raise the fare and people who had the money would pay for would it still to get there so it. much quicker. Yeah. And uh, so it was a very, very high priced flight. And if you've been on, well, you, some of you have been on board, it wasn't the most particularly luxurious or comfortable aircraft. But uh, but it certainly was fast. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly was. Uh, anyway, more uh, to come uh, with that series. Uh, part seven uh, will be in next week's show. Only a couple more uh, parts left to go, sadly. Uh, so we must make sure we make the most of them. Anyway, we still... Then, just, oh, two on. more quick things. One is at first, Nev has just done a wonderful job of putting that all together yeah, and editing it. And yeah. the, just really brilliant uh but uh, a couple of technical things i am no longer in the chat room i can't get in there based on what's happening with my uh internet yes. and although i can see the show notes i won't be able to get to the link so i can't do any stories i can only offer commentary okay on. all right that's fair enough now i appreciate the heads up well i'm sure between uh, myself and uh, armando who's still in the chair will be able to do that anyway it is time to hand over to armando for um well let, let's be honest his part of the show <laughs> yeah thanks matt yeah let's uh knock out a couple quick military stories so if you guys are ready let's go ahead and hit the button here we go This entire military segment is brought to you by Global. Uh, the fine <laughs> folks over there are putting out some, some great uh, content. And uh, the first story that uh, we're going to talk about is something that we have been tracking for now about two years. Uh, the Air Force has hummed and hawed about this. And you know, we've had some successes, some failures. But finally, the U.S. Special Operations Command plans on buying 75 fixed-wing aircraft for its just-announced Armed Overwatch program. The aircraft are intended for close air support of Special Operations troops, according to a notice announcing an upcoming Industry Day posted online 3 February. Armed Overwatch will provide Special Operations forces deployable and sustainable manned aircraft systems, fulfilling close air support, precision strike, and intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance in austere and permissive environments. What does that actually mean? Uh, the program is similar to the faltering light attack experiment within the U.S. Air Force, which aims to show light attack aircraft, specifically the Textron AT-6 and the Sierra Nevada Embraer A-29, could cheaply boost the air-to-ground attack capabilities of U.S. allies and foreign partners. To further that experiment, the service announced October 2019 that it planned to give Textron and Sierra Nevada orders for the purchase of two to three light attack aircraft each. Now, slightly differently, the Armed Overwatch program is closer to the U.S. Uh, U.S. Air Force's light attack experiment's original goal of providing the U.S. military with a cheaper alternative for air-to-ground attack missions. 
compared to the expensive to fly fourth and fifth generation fighters such as the F-15 or the F-35. Air superiority is often the USA's trump card, specifically when patrolling or fighting on the ground with small numbers of troops. The issue came to the top of the Pentagon's priorities after four U.S. soldiers were killed in an ambush in Niger by the Islamic State in Greater Sahara in 2017, partly due to lack of air cover. Triple-crop light attack aircraft such as the AT-7 and the A-29 can carry machine guns, rockets, missiles, and precision bombs. The U.S. Special Operations Command plans to host an industry day 4 to 5 March to explain the armed overwatch program to prospective bidders. Initially, armed overwatch would be pursued as a prototype initiative to demonstrate the concept, says SOCOM. If the demonstration phase proves promising enough, U.S. Special Operations Command plans to award a follow-on contract with a base five-year ordering period plus a two-year option for 75 aircraft and maintenance supports. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's it's helicopters at the end of the day. <laughs> this is one of those. Yeah, things you really you guys, I about this. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. I was going to say this is one of those things that really fascinates me about the Air Force, and I'm really curious about your opinion on it, Armando, based on being uh, Army and being a very, very, uh, you know, high-ranking uh, non-com. Um, the Air Force, since the uh, Key West Agreement of 1948, when the Air Force actually came into existence, worked with the Army and said we're going to handle everything in the air, but yet the Air Force doesn't want to do ground attack. And they fought like heck that they didn't want uh, the, uh, to do ground attack, and, and they kind of reluctantly took on the uh, the A-1 Sky Raider, which was, you know, the first uh, Sandy that we flew in Vietnam. And then they didn't want the uh, the A-7 Corsair too because it was a ground attack, slow, low and slow aircraft, because they want to do dogfighting. And they don't want the – they're trying to get rid of the A-10, which is another low and slow, linger longer over the – over the ground and can take care of ground attack and, and troop coverage. And they insist they don't want it, but they don't want to let the army do it either. <laughs> and all they want to they want fast, you know, dogfighting aircraft. They say the F-35 will take over for the A-10 or the, the F-16 will take over for the A-10, but none of them do. And so SOCOM is going out and said, look, we can't deal with this anymore. We're going to get our own. And it drives me crazy that the Air Force doesn't want this critical, critical operation, but won't let anyone else do it. Yeah. Oh, Armando? Did we lose him? Oh, don't gosh. No. Oh. no, he's disappeared. Oh well. Okay. All right. Well, we'll have we'll have to move on to the next story. Unfortunately, and uh, that is as, as he said, we're still with uh, Flight Global, and the headline is um, the U.S. Navy flies two EA-18G Growlers autonomously. Third Growler used as controller. So the U.S. Navy flew two Boeing EA-18G Growlers as autonomous unmanned air vehicles. That's UAVs uh, using a third Growler as a flight controller. In total, four flights were conducted at Naval, Naval Air Station Patuxent River uh, with tests starting in September 2019, says manufacturer Boeing on the 4th of February. The aircraft demonstrated 21 missions during flights that took place toward the end of 2019, says Boeing. The type of missions were not disclosed. Uh, the flights are a forerunner to using the EA-18G as a mission controlling platform for autonomous loyal uh, wingman UAVs. Unmanned manned 
teaming is a new US Department of Defense concept in aerial combat where some work could be offloaded to UAVs, especially dangerous missions. This demonstration allows Boeing and the Navy to op the opportunity to analyze the data collected and decide where to make investments in future technologies, says Tom Brandt, who's Boeing's manned unmanned team teaming demonstration lead it could provide synergy with other u.s navy unmanned systems in development across the spectrum and in other services boeing says that the flights were conducted during the usn warfare development command annual fleet experiment exercises the ea-18g is an electronic warfare aircraft for the usn used to jam an adversary's sensors and weapon systems such as the radar guided surface-to-air missile batteries. Uh, it is a two-seat combat aircraft based on the FA-18F Super Hornet fighter. Uh, the USN said uh, previously that it's planning on upgrading some, if not all, of its 160 example ground of fleet to a Block 2 configuration, which includes an advanced cockpit system for uh, conformal fuel tanks improved sensors and an upgraded uh, electronic attack package. The upgrades would also include the ability to control loyal wingman aircraft, Boeing said. Uh, Boeing has not said previously that uh, the Block 2 upgrade package would include the ability to fly the uh, EA-18G autonomously. Uh, this technology allows the Navy to extend the reach of sensors while keeping manned aircraft out of harm's way, Brant of Boeing said. It's a force multiplier that enables a single crew to control multiple aircraft without greatly increasing workload. It has the potential to increase uh, survivability as well as situational awareness. The EA-18Gs were modified over the summer of 2019. Uh, ground, uh, Three growlers were modified to support an open architecture processor and advanced networking, which allowed for two of the growlers to be transformed into unmanned air system surrogate aircraft, the company said. Uh, those two pieces of technology were prototypes uh, that, was, uh, that, that are also planned as part of Boeing's Block 3 upgrades for the Super Hornet, uh, the distributed targeting processor network, and the Rockwell Collins tactical targeting network technology radio. The USN and Boeing shared the development costs of the manned-unmanned teaming technology, says Boeing. Uh, flying the Growler autonomously is reminiscent of Boeing's previously previous work with the QF-16, a retired Lockheed Martin F-16 fighting Falcon that was turned into an autonomous UAV to be used as a full-scale aerial target. The initial QF-16 was first flown by Boeing back in 2013. Uh, some defense uh, some defense researchers have uh, proposed turning the USAF's fleet of retired F-16s into a group of limited-use combat UAVs. I mean, it's a fascinating story, really, isn't it? It's uh, the te the technology amazing. involved is 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 mind-blowing, isn't it? Yeah, what's really amazing about it, you know, we've had, uh, as we've, we've talked about before with the helicopter story, that, you know, we've had remote uh, piloted uh, aircraft for a long time. But what's beautiful about this is that what it, it's, it's an aircraft that's flying in formation with these drones. It's the same aircraft that's flying with them with the same capabilities, and they're being controlled by the aircraft, uh, by, by that, that manned uh, uh, EA, uh, EA-18. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it remarkable because they can go in with – one pilot yeah. and probably a Wizzo fly in one aircraft and fly three, four, five aircraft in formation and be able to control them all with just one man or, or two men uh, 
on site, which is really a major safety issue. And well, I think that's what. Yeah, that's exactly right, Mike. And I'm so sorry. I apologize. I lost you after the Sky Raider. Uh, <laughs> everything just completely went dark on my end. Oh, um, but no, you're you're completely right. This is uh, such a force multiplier, and and especially reading this story, I can think of how many aircrafts, how many military aircraft are sitting at the boneyard and in different uh, reclamation facilities around the country, and what what a an, an immense cost savings that would be if you know god forbid we actually need to go to a large-scale combat you could retrofit so many of these uh, older fourth generation fighters mm-hmm. that are sitting in the desert somewhere to into a combat role i mean i presume a military go on and with our military pilot shortage it really helps and fixes that situation as well because we need far fewer pilots for more aircraft yeah this, this is true yeah, like so many things, I think the military will come up with some innovative ways to address that pilot shortage. And it is very possible that the commercial aviation sector follows in the next you know, few years. Wow. Well, I hadn't really and thought if, of that. Yeah, And if it's okay, I'd like to go back to the last story and get Armando's opinion since he's back yeah, with yeah. us. And what I was saying is, you know, with this whole uh, – with, with, with SOCOM and their 75 light attack uh, – um, aircraft is that you know the air force since it's been organized has never wanted to do ground attack and it didn't want the a1 sky raider but it took it reluctantly and it didn't want the a7 corsair 2 another ground attack aircraft but it took it reluctantly and it only took the a10 because it only uh, it took it reluctantly because the army was going to put their cheyenne helicopter into war into effect and they said no 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 we'll handle it and they still don't want ground attack they only want fast jets they say the F-16 will do ground attack and the F-35 will do ground attack. And I'm wondering how an Army person who is so involved in things like this feels about the Air Force not wanting to actually purchase ground attack aircraft and do that role. So this is – it's an interesting topic that you bring up, Micah, because um, the Air Force is, as you say, has long been known as very much a you know a fast jet mentality. You have the bomber, the strategic – uh, bomber capability, that that long reach tanker and cargo capability. So what's driving this is Special Operations Command. So Special Operations Command is an operational command that kind of brings all of the services together as well as some interagency partners uh, to include law enforcement, federal law enforcement, into one operational umbrella. And as such, they actually have a completely different operating budget and they are in, uh, completely mixed. So the leadership at the top, while it may be an Air Force general, you'll usually have a Navy vice, uh, you'll have an Army uh, operations officer, a Marine Corps intelligence director, and it's very much a joint environment. And the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq were the catalysts for us to develop these joint operational capabilities. And then we started seeing them, especially in 2005, 2007, you know, we started operating joint operations in the Philippines, in South America and Africa. And all of those operations have proven that it, it is to have that joint capability for a small footprint, light attack, uh, aerial capability that is completely 100% compatible with the ground operations and space and cyber uh, 
it, it's, it's imperative to conducting these, these, as we used to call them, military operations other than war or special operations, low intensity conflicts. Um, that it, so the Air Force, uh, you know, the big poster Air Force, the big blue Air Force that you see on the television ads, they're always going to be about F-35s and, uh, and AWACS and, and those airports or air, airplanes. But what's really driving this is that almost pseudo sixth service, which is Special Operations Command. It just fascinates me that, uh, you know, I, I, Special Operations Command is a great organization. But here, you know, we separate the services and it takes all the services coming together to be able to do what needs to be done in these really incredible, these, these amazing and unique situations. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they'll drive the airports to do it. <laughs> they, don't, they don't get a choice. Yep. <laughs> uh, I wonder if I could trouble you to take the last story then, please, Armando, seeing as we lost you earlier. Um, and, uh, again, Flight Global, and we're talking about the RAF welcoming the first Poseidon to Kinloss Base. That's right, Matt. The UK RAF has moved a step closer towards reinstating its lapsed uh, dedicated maritime patrol aircraft capability with a first uh, Boeing P-8 Poseidon having touched down at uh, RAF Kinloss in Scotland on 4 February. 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 <laughs> the, <laughs> the newly arrived aircraft had been supporting personnel training activities at the U.S. Navy's uh, Naval, Air Station, Naval Air Station Jacksonville uh, in Florida since last November prior to making its first transatlantic crossing. Uh, it is the first of nine extensively adapted 737NG narrowbodies uh, being acquired under a $3 billion pound or a $3.9 billion uh, U.S. project for the RAF, which will operate the type from a permanent home at RAF Lozima, uh, Scotland, in uh, October 2020. Early activities will be conducted from Kinloss, however, while runway and taxiway resurfacing work is conducted completed at the other site. Deliveries to the UK are due to be completed by late 2021 with full operational capability planned in 2024, says the Ministry of Defense. The Poseidon MRA-1s will be flown by the RAF's uh, 120 and 201 squadrons. Uh, Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Mike Wigston, says the type's introduction will provide a game-changing capability in the face of threats, including Russian submarines. The RAF retired the last of its British Aerospace Nimrods, MR2, uh, in 2010, having canceled the type's intended successor, the Nimrod MRA4. Now, I, and I mean, this is... I'm, go ahead, Mike. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I mean, I'm familiar with the Nimrod, but I mean, so what, what is it that they're going to use this, this sort of like the Poseidon 4, what, I mean, what, is, what is behind it? Is it reconnaissance or is it data gathering? I mean, what, what, is, what is its mission? Uh, I would venture to say it's probably a little, all of them. Okay. Uh, it's maritime patrol primarily. It's anti-submarine warfare. It's, uh, it is data gathering. And in fact, it was just an article I read, I believe, on the drive, and I wish I had it in front of me now, where at least in the U.S., they're looking to arm these things with... Uh, with, with some missiles and some bombs, believe it or not. It may be the first maritime bomber the Navy's going to have in quite some time to be able to take out submarines. Wow. Uh, there's a true problem uh, going on with uh, Russian submarines on the east coast of the United States that, again, was a story, a couple of stories in the drive 
uh, recently, mm. and uh, it's the first time in a long time that uh, uh, ships can't go out to sea on the East Coast without uh, uh, knowing that they're going to be observed by uh, Russian submarines patrolling the East Coast of the U.S. And so these uh, maritime patrol aircraft, the uh, these uh, used to be the P-3s, now it's a P-8 Poseidons, are going to play more, a um, far more crucial role than they have in the past. And uh, there used to be a base of them, of the P-3s, up here in Maine at the Brunswick Naval Air Station. That's since been closed down. And now the only real base of them is down in Florida. Yeah, that's right, Matt, uh, or uh, Micah and Matt. But the, the, I'll also add that the U.K. Ministry of Defense has been on this push over the last couple of years to acquire aircraft produced and interoperable with U.S. aircraft. So the Poseidon is the latest addition. We saw the F-35s uh, land at Warham uh, not too long ago. And uh, another little known one, the, the RAF has an RC-135, a reconnaissance aircraft that is exactly the same as the U.S. ones. So when, when we're talking about uh, U.S. and U.K. going into operations uh, together, as well as training together, uh, there's just a, a, a closer bond, a closer partnership that, that continues to develop on, on the technology, the research and development and acquisition fronts between the two uh, militaries. That, I mean yeah, that 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 is fascinating stuff, isn't it? It's uh, we'll have to uh, we'll have to see then. But uh, I, I mean, I've been on I've been on the they've got Nimrod at um, the Norwich Aviation Museum, and uh, you know some of the like the 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 data gathering equipment and everything is all still on board, and it, that's the only reason I'm sort of thinking that obviously because it, it was uh, uh, you know some of the test equipment was in there, it was sort of geared out very much for anything from reconnaissance to, to data gathering. And what's interesting is the uh, the Nimrod was based on the uh, on the comet, believe it or not. Oh, okay. Uh, and the Poseidon is based on the 737NG. Ah, very good. <laughs> okay, we're going to move on. Then it's time to start wrapping up. But before we do that, uh, we've actually had um, some emails uh, from our wonderful listeners. <coughs> and uh, uh, Micah, the first one is from James Taylor. Yes, and uh, he wrote us. He said, guys, love the podcast. First time feedback for me. Just thought I'd give some feedback on a topic you discussed on 1st February 2020 regarding the 737 MAX. You discussed whether confidence in Boeing had been seriously dented as a result of the MAX problems. Whilst I agree that the 737 MAX will be very safe to fly when it is recertified, there are still many serious questions and concerns that Boeing and the FAA have yet to address. For example... The self-certification of the MAX that the FAA allowed Boeing to carry out on their behalf. The fact that Boeing intended and implemented a regime where pilot training to convert from the next gen to the MAX 737s was only an e-learning course and no sim training was mandated. Questionable due to the opinion that it could be argued that the MAX has fundamentally different handling characteristics due to the change in center of gravity and the implementation of MCAS to counter this. I had first-hand feedback of pilot requirements last year before the crash uh, crashed from the good friend who was a 737 captain on a fleet that has purchased a significant quantity of the type. We know that Boeing was under pressure to introduce the 737 MAX with minimal cost to those operators, and there is, of course, a strong suspicion that Boeing minimized the perceived impact of this change from the NG to MAX by not fully articulating 
these changes and not mandating sim training. Totally agree that Boeing can't afford the MAX to be anything less than safe when it is reintroduced, but Boeing still has to come clean and answer many questions regarding corporate culture and governance before confidence in them is fully restored. I mean, it's. I mean, there's so many questions in there that that we need answers to, isn't there? I mean, one. I mean, in fact, actually, I think because uh, when we were putting the show notes together, there has been a little bit of a story that's sort of been muted slash mentioned in the fact that the some some people seem to think they've found another fault in this software, haven't they? I mean, we have we haven't really gone into it in detail because unfortunately we've not been able to find anything other than hearsay, if you like, on this story. We haven't been able to find any official statements or anything, which is why we've not sort of included it as one of our main stories. But um, I mean, it, this this problem is just getting. It almost seems to be getting worse, doesn't it? Well, what fascinates me about this, Matt, and you'll really get this from your you know expertise with computers, is that you know when you come up with new software. A lot of times you don't even know what it's going to do. You don't know what the glitches are going to be because you haven't operated it. Even when you test it completely and you finally release, you know, you do the, the, the alpha and the beta, and even if you do a couple of others, you release it, and there are still surprises. Look at what happens with iOS. Mm. This, that software isn't anywhere near as complex as what software we're seeing in aircraft. And so they, the, what happened with MCAS and the, led to those crashes were things that were never, ever expected. Yeah. How can you expect what you don't, what you can't expect? No. So, you know, there there are questions about that, and the fact that aircraft are so software related, I think that's an issue. Yeah, is is that true? Then I didn't realize that there was an element of self certification going on as far as Boeing was concerned. I mean, is 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 that accurate? There was always a relationship with uh, between all aircraft manufacturers and the FAA to do okay. certification testing and report it to the FAA. Mm. And uh, some people feel that this has gone too far and that Boeing reported their certification testing to the FAA and the FAA signs off on it. Um, so it's not really unusual. Mm. Uh, Boeing's getting a bad rap for it because they got caught up in it. Yeah. But it can happen to anyone. Armando, what do you think about that? No, that's exactly right. And that's one of the core issues. Uh, of this whole Max saga, it's not so much, you know, just like the email says, we we will continue to, to stand by the Max and say, when it does uh, finally get fielded, it will be one of the safest airplanes out there. It's all of the other issues that were highlighted uh, in this investigation. And that, Matt, was one of the core issues was, yeah. how far can we let, now, now it is impossible it would be impossible for the FAA to regulate, test, and certify every single piece of hardware and software True. on every airplane that is being produced out there. Yeah. Um, therefore, it is, it's one of those things that, like Micah said, it's just needed. There's no, there's no other way to do it. It's just how, where is the, what's the right level of oversight and what's the right level of uh, freedom that you allow the aircraft manufacturer to to say it's good to go. Here's all our research, and here's how we've met your standards to the FAA. Yeah, it's oh, I, I, I I I get, and this is the trouble, isn't it? My, my naivety, if you like. I mean, uh, I I didn't you know know that that was a thing i guess which is why why i found found that email you know quite surprising really it's um 
I, I, st I still stand by what I said, though. I do think when they do finally get it, all right, you know, okay, there is this rumbling of, of another software fault that's been found. Um, but then at the end of the day, they're already grounded. So, you know, hopefully it will obviously be sorted before it goes back in the air. Um, I still stand by what I've said, though. I do feel that when it is finally back in the air, I mean, it is going to be one of the safest aircraft out there. You know, and Matt, you just said something that I think is really key to how this whole situation has uh, become as big as it has, is that you said you weren't aware yeah. that uh, most aircraft manufacturers do a lot of, not self-certification, because it's not self-certification, but report their certification to the FAA that then certifies it. Yeah. Because most people don't know that that's happening, yeah. and that's always been the way it's been, they hear that and they go, oh my gosh, that's absolutely wrong. And, and 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 they have a yeah. it's it's reasonable for them to think that because they don't understand how certification works generally yeah so and I think that's why it, with social media these things have blown up and it's not to say that the, the 737 max wasn't a, isn't a disaster and it certainly has fouled a lot of things up but there's a lot of not misinformation but new information out there that generally people would never know about. But of course this is sort of sensationalist media that, that I mean has been a, a problem with aviation for you know certainly recently and obviously added to that now social media you get that sort of you know the the the, the rolling 24-hour news outlets are literally looking for any nugget of a story that they can almost blow out of all proportion on purpose aren't they and this this is the issue i mean if you go back to a time perhaps when we used to have a lunchtime bulletin a 6 p.m bulletin and then the 10 o'clock news um you know the 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 stories that were being run then obviously had been thoroughly fact-checked they'd be you know full of you know they'd be waiting for the detail rather than you know guesstimates and and people making assumptions and things you know we used to have news as news, and we used to have news and weather. Then we got to have weather as news, and now we have news as entertainment. That's yeah. what's going on. Yeah, that's true. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, anything else you'd like to add, Armando? Well, for us geeks, now we've got weather as entertainment. Oh, <laughs> well, this is true. <laughs> that, that is true. Uh, we've got one last little bit of feedback, uh, if I can trouble you, Armando, uh, from Alan Loveday this time. <clears throat> That's right. Very nice email saying, just listen to the wrap-up of episode 302. Great news regarding Tux Tuxford. Uh, looking forward to the dates in due course. I will certainly try to attend, and Nigel is a maybe, depending on the dates. I've also given a friend of mine who lives in Chelmsford a heads up. He recently gave me grief for not telling him about the recent meetup. so fingers crossed we can all be hit. <laughs> best regards. That yeah, this, uh, I, yeah, I've always said this is the best part about doing the podcast thing is meeting the people so yeah. uh alan yeah. to, and everybody else out there will make sure that as soon as we get dates yeah uh, absolutely and, and then i uh Micah, i believe there are sort of rumblings from uh uh apg are sort of trying to do because obviously farnborough really isn't sort of happening as we know it now um and so trying to organize a big meetup here in the uk uh, again and so perhaps perhaps we need to sort of liaise with them and sort of sync diaries i think that would be great if, if APG is listening, Captain Jeff or Steph or Dana never listens to anything, so I'll say that right out loud, you know, or Nick. <laughs> but, but, and, I, and I love Dana, and he and knows not, I love him, uh, so I'll Auntie, say that. But, Auntie Liz will be listening, so and, yeah, I'm sure and she'll... Liz is in the chat yeah, room. Absolutely. But, you know, they've been talking about a uh, meetup in the in the UK or possibly Europe this year, yeah. and I was just thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful if you guys could coordinate together and set up a meetup 
it may be at Duxford, so that it's an APG PTUK group meetup, yeah. as it always would be anyway, and we could all get together and uh, jo- and, and, and see everybody. Jonathan Warner's busy shouting at me in the chat room here. He's uh, and Tony, yes, they're both saying, uh, uh, get everyone to react. Uh, Tony says, I'll second that, Jonathan. So there we are. Well, uh, well that uh, would be great, except for the lack of hotels and, and, well, yeah, and, and all those yeah, other things. But, that, yeah. but, but I'm just hoping that if we do do this, I do want to get there. And I'm hoping Armando is going to be there because can you believe it? I've never met Armando in person. Oh, you've missed out. <laughs> yeah, we've been on, on quite a few episodes together now. But uh, yeah, there's there are still people that I want to you know meet in person and shake their hand. But uh, Micah, I, I promise you that I will make it up there to uh, to Maine at some point. I'll probably bring my lovely bride with me because we both love some lobster. Uh, love to see you guys. <laughs> and that seems like a perfect place to start to wrap up the show uh, to get in touch with the show there are many ways of doing that social media all you need to do is search for Plain Talking UK our WhatsApp number plus four four seven five seven double two four nine one six six that's plus four four seven five seven double two four nine one six six Carlos will be back in the studio hopefully next week so we'll be able to actually have those on the show as we're going a- a- along in future the email is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com uh, feel free to get in touch with anything about the show any news stories that you stumble across that you think we should feature uh, or you just want to sort of get in touch and say hi podcast at plaintalkinguk.com and the website www.plaintalkinguk.com we've got some great t-shirts uh, that are available on there and also a contact form if you want to get in touch with the show now interestingly next week's show potentially falls on Valentine's Day so we'll have to see what happens with in regard to whether we do one next Friday Friday. I don't Everybody know. dresses in pink. You're right. Well, quite absolutely. And I mean, I dare say Armando's probably got something hideously romantic planned. <laughs> oh, unfortunately, I'm going to be in Phoenix oh. flying. So, oh. if anybody wants to spend uh, Valentine's Day with me in Phoenix, right? Okay. Uh, no, just kidding. I, I think I think that, I think there'll be more people interested in maybe sort of looking after Megan perhaps for you while you. <laughs> hey, nobody gets to look after Megan, but right. Okay, fair enough. She doesn't get to do a meetup on Valentine's Day without me. No, I'm kidding. She can do fair whatever enough. she wants. Absolutely. She's giving me all kinds of glares, the captain. She's actually driving this 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 boat right now, so I absolutely. Literally, have no yeah. opinion. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so yes, yeah, so I don't really know when the show. is is uh, going to go out next week because uh, as I say it is on Valentine's Day and I, I, well I'd like to think that maybe Mrs. Stebbings might well, quite like to do something with her husband um, but uh, yes uh, wh- so you, you mentioned flying, flying to Phoenix what have you got on your itinerary for next week then uh, Armando? I've got a full week of flying from uh, Tuesday on so I'll be starting in Pittsburgh ending up in Phoenix going up to Denver so it's a uh, so four five day trip uh, pretty much all over the country wow okay and what about uh, you Micah what have you got planned for your itinerary so so you, you you've um obviously you've had some problems with your back I mean where are you with that now I know you're saying you're going to the gym and stuff what what well, where was, are you I was, in supposed the... to, I was supposed to have surgery on January 2nd and uh, when I saw the doctor on the 30th he said you know you're doing much better the exercise you've been doing and the physical therapy you've been doing is improving things Let's look at you again on March 3rd and see oh, what's going on. Okay. So I'm continuing with the physical therapy, and I plan on going to the gym or physical therapy. I'll, I'll be on the bike and on the treadmill at least three times next week and doing my exercises. And also, I will be continuing to test my theory on of the coronavirus. Absolutely. And uh, so, so far, 
<laughs> so far, so good. Yes, absolutely. So far, everything is fine. Lovely, okay, still, good. Still no problems. It is. And it is uh, a I'll continue to test that. And uh, and if I, anything comes up, I will report back to you. To of course, you absolutely. Know. <laughs> yeah, quite okay. Well, that is where we're going to bring the show to a close. Micah, thank you so very much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show again. My pleasure. Great to be here. Thank you. And uh, Armando, I can't believe it. It's sort of held up, it might mostly. Yeah, we'll, we'll give it a 90% yes, success rate. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's still worth a curt courtesy text to your service provider. Uh, <laughs> I well, that's... who would have thought that I would be the one to lose the internet while Armando was Quite. in the car, right? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Poor Mike has had more problems with his internet, and he's at home. <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, also let Maddie say goodbye. Ah. Oh, Bye, Maddie. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. That's it, guys. Take care. Uh, we'll see everybody next week. Until then, everybody say goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.